Hi, this is Claire Keene, illustrator and author of Once Upon a Cloud, and you are listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 123 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place and I am glad you're here. Today we have another returning guest, one who has done some work I know you've seen and some other work that you need to see. In this episode, we return to visual development artist and children's book author and illustrator Claire Keene. Back in episode 84, which incidentally I released the day after my daughter was born, Claire talked about what a visual development artist does, working on Tangled and Frozen, what it was like working on Tangled with her dad, legendary Disney animator Glenn Keane, her first book, Once Upon a Cloud, and some advice for you. Now, almost two years later, believe it or not, in this episode, Claire talks about a brief refresher on what a visual development artist does, the difference in what her role was on Frozen versus Tangled, how Frozen changed dramatically while she was working on it, what her process as a visual development artist is like, her work on Rapunzel's murals in Tangled, and having to put that sun emblem in there. What she did on the movie Enchanted. Why Tangled was and is so special to her. How Tangled set the stage for wanting to do her children's books. Growing up with Glenn Keane as her dad, and how he continues to support her. Unfortunately, we did have a little bit of a Skype issue in this part. Her newest book, Little Big Girl. What it's about, what makes it different, and how it partially echoes the style of her granddad, Bill Keen, the tribute to her granddad she included in the book. Here's a hint. It's also in the show notes for this episode. Whether the pictures created the words or vice versa while she was working on her books. How creating Little Big Girl has influenced the way she looks at the world. And of course, shameless plug time. Before we get started, I have a very exciting announcement. Well, it's exciting to me, and I hope you'll share in that excitement. Later this year, my first book, Once Upon Your Time, will be republished by Theme Park Press. Depending on how it does, this could also be the first in a series of short books that will address such possible topics as relationships, money, goals, etc., using the same framework that I did with this one, using the details and stories of Disneyland to draw out real-world applications and strategies that you can use right now. One thing at a time, though. I'll give you sneak peeks along the way, and I look forward to the new and improved book. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Hello, Neverlanders. I'm Jeremy, host of the Neverland Podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. 
As a young boy in Marceline, Missouri, Walt Disney played Peter Pan in a school play, and Peter Pan remained one of his favorite stories throughout his life. He used to say that an adult was just a grown-up child, and he designed Disneyland to help that adult act like a child again. Well, that's what we do here in Neverland. This is where you never have to grow up. And so we'll talk about heroes like Spider-Man, He-Man, and others that taught us how to do what's right because right makes might. And we'll enjoy the simple pleasures of imagination, our greatest toy. We're like Saturday mornings all in one podcast. Every week on the Neverland Podcast, we'll sprinkle our pixie dust and fly to Disney and beyond. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. In episode 84, almost two years ago, I had the honor of introducing you to author, illustrator, and visual development artist Claire Keane. If you listen to that episode, you know that Claire has a fascinating and impressive history, including a nearly royal animation lineage. Her father, Glenn Keane, was a renowned Disney artist, and her grandfather, Bill Keane, was the creator of the Family Circus comic strip. She's an illustrator and visual development artist who, while working at the Walt Disney Animation Studios, contributed to the Disney films Enchanted, Tangled, Wreck-It Ralph, and Frozen. As a conceptual artist during the production of Tangled, Claire's work was perhaps most visible as the murals the character Rapunzel paints on the wall of her tower. At the time we first talked, she had recently completed her debut picture book, The Beautiful and Sweet Once Upon a Cloud. In late May of 2015, I had the additional honor of meeting Claire in person and watching and listening as she read that book to a group of children, including my then eight-week-old daughter. It was my daughter's first author reading and her first book autographed to her. Since that time, Claire's released another picture book, Little Big Girl, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, that, more about having been a visual development artist with Disney, and hopefully some about her family, too. Let's not take any more time away from our guest of honor, though. So, Claire, welcome back to Stories of the Magic. Hi. Thanks for having me on here. It is my pleasure. And I have to tell you, as we get started here, that my daughter, who's now coming up on two, she's, she's about 22 months, and she loves Once Upon a Cloud. Oh, she, wow. I can't believe it's been that long. I know. It's, it's been crazy. such a long time. Now, this is how we started last time, and I know it's probably one of the most common questions you get asked, but for the sake of listeners who may have missed our first interview, what does a visual development artist do? So a visual development artist is someone who, I call it like the, we're like the first man out on the battlefield. The The director comes up with an idea, and, and they have an idea of general for the story, and a visual development artist kind of helps develop what that idea could look like visually, um, including what the story beats are or could potentially be or could potentially not be. So it's just kind of like this big blue sky type of way of working that's like throwing out ideas, seeing which ones stick, which ones don't, and um, just trying out a whole bunch of things. And and also kind of like helping figure out like okay what is it about this story that um, that the storyteller the director really wants to say what is it visually how how do we figure out what that looks like visually? Wow, that sounds like a pretty large scope of what you would be called in to do, and starting from some story ideas, some almost a blank canvas. I guess I also left out the fact that so that is like one part of visual development, and then there's. Also, the other part of visual development that is a lot more production-oriented, where once you have this story, now you have things that need to be designed. Like you've got an environment that the character lives in, you have the character, you have the clothes, 
all of those things that need to get designed are also under the the visual development umbrella as well. Okay, so like when we think of what you did or what I know of that you did on Frozen working with kind of developing the relationship between Anna and Elsa or what you did with yeah. Rapunzel and you know, working on the mural for her wall and some of those other things about her character's look and feel, that would be kind of that second part you were just talking about. Well, the development part for Frozen was more the first part, kind of, where oh. it's like they have a vague idea and they have to kind of just figure out like, okay, what is it about this idea that we're connecting with visually? And is this the type of idea that we want to go with? Oh, okay. So how different was Frozen when you started with that compared to what it ended up with? Did it go through a lot of pretty significant changes? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Huge changes. In the beginning, Frozen was more about this girl who was kind of like a type A personality and she was closed off to love. And, and there was the the Snow Queen who was a villain. Basically, it's a completely different story. But there was this idea of inside you is something very human and that even though like the exterior can start being closed off or frozen, there's always something human underneath. And so there was this idea about freezing hearts and being thawed out. Yeah, that definitely did make it through all the way to that mm -hmm. end product there. When yeah. you have to start and it goes through those changes, I mean, it sounds to me and maybe this is because I'm not a visual development artist, that a lot of the work that you do, they'll take and look at and say, yeah, that's not the direction we want to go at all. Basically yeah. throw that out and start over here. Is that difficult to put a lot of work into uh, you know, one concept and then they say, no, we don't want to do that at all. Start over. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it usually isn't like, oh, we saw that. Okay. Now we're going to do it a different way. It's, it's usually like you're kind of part of that process. So most of the time, like I usually agree. And so it's, it isn't that difficult to start over because it's usually, there's usually some type of story problem in another part of the movie where it just, that one little thing that you were working on just doesn't fit with the overall arc of the story, which in the end, like you just want the, the movie to be, you want it, you want it to work as a whole rather than just your getting your drawings into the ideas, you know. And also what's kind of cool is that you get to do it all over again. <laughs> like on Rapunzel, every time they would change the character, I got to redesign her dress and redesign what she'd look like or redesign her room. And it was really fun because it just, I got to work on the project even that much longer, which, I mean, I'm sure that's not what the producers would have wanted <laughs> right. or anybody else. But it was a really fun project to be working on. So I really welcomed the opportunity to continue working on it. Mm -hmm. Especially when you've got one that's that fun. I can see how you'd want to just keep going as long as you possibly yeah. could. So I don't know if there's even an easy way to answer this question, but what is your process as a visual development artist like? And I'm, I'm sure that depends in part on where in the process you come in or, or something like that. But when you usually first get a project or a job, how do you approach it? What do you do first? What's the journey that you go on? Well, first, I have to think about what it is that this storyteller is trying to communicate and what is it that my drawings could bring to what it is that they want to communicate. And it's usually some type of relationship between two characters or it might also be just 
saying something about the character and the plot or something. So those are those are the things that I, I first think about and then kind of go from there and try to see, okay, so if this is what I have to say about the character, how do how best do I describe that? And in your case, they you know, they probably tried to describe it to you verbally and then you describe what you have back to them visually. Yeah. Yeah. And also going a little bit more in depth and figuring about, okay, well, why is the character like this? Uh, what is the backstory? And just kind of like going down deeper, deeper, deeper. So how do you do that in that kind of visual medium? You 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 can't write a backstory per se. You're doing a series of you know, still image drawings. So what do you do? What do you try to capture in those drawings if you're going to try to get deeper into a character and who they are? Well, first, I do research. Just I just kind of like research the world that she's in or that he's in, like just the, the world, um, because I kind of have a hard time getting started. But if I can just start slowly by research, it just kind of puts me in this place where there's not much pressure. I'm just looking. I'm just observing. I really just need to start thinking about what it is that I'm attracted to in this story. Well, in this story in general and about the character and then start like grabbing onto that and like researching, okay, oh, there's like this, this kind of like really ethereal vibe that I really like about this world and this story. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to kind of go down that road and then, and then that might lead to an idea and that'll, then I'll start drawing that idea and then something else will come up from that and Hopefully I will end up <laughs> delivering something that the storyteller, the director is actually wanting me to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the goal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at what point in the process is, or the development of the film, is your part usually done? Uh, like how long into it are you continuing to provide this for them usually? Well, it depends uh, on how far into it you go. I mean, if you are just doing like the beginning part of just blue skying what the story could be, there's probably about two years worth of work left after you leave the project. But a lot of times as a visual development artist, you tend to stay on and help design what those ideas that you came up with, help design what those are going to look like in, in reality. Like for me on, on Tangled, I developed how she was going to act and think and, and paint. Then I stayed on and developed like what her dress would look like and designed assets for the production, in particular her, her paintings on her walls. But for Frozen, I didn't really do that. I just I was just there in the beginning for the blue sky phase. Yeah, you mentioned the murals for Rapunzel in Entangled, uh, and I know at the risk of spoiling things for people in a movie that's a few years old, uh, kind of the big turning point for Rapunzel when she had that realization was seeing all of those sun emblems within that mural artwork that she had done. It, were you tasked with making sure some of those were in there or did you just, you provided kind of the overall, what it was going to look like. And then the animation team later on went in and maybe tweaked some things to make sure those were there. No, I had to design them in there. Wow. 
but I, I mean, it's not all over the tower. It's just in the places where they were going to be moving the camera. Okay, right. <laughs> that would have been a really big job. Okay, here's this huge mural. We want you to put a hundred of these in there. Yeah. We're going to use five, okay. but not tell you which ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is that more focused and directed than you usually tend to have to be? Uh, was this kind of a unique thing or does that tend to play into more um, of the projects? Well, yes and no. I mean, it was such a big, wide open task. We're like, okay, we've got Rapunzel. She's a painter. We don't know what style painting that she does. So you can just decide what style she does. And also, we don't really know what she paints. So that's up to you, too. So, <laughs> like, that was like really kind of wide open and kind of daunting for me. But at the same time, it was specific because it was actually going to be on the screen. So I, w I was working with like the people who were mapping it onto the geometry for the camera to go over and stuff like that. Got it. Wow. So yeah, you really did have the whole spectrum on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of course, you've worked on several other films too, including several, like everyone I know of that you worked on is one of my favorites. Like all the ones I mentioned oh, in the great. intro, <laughs> you know, Tangled, Wreck-It Ralph, Frozen, Enchanted, which I love Enchanted. Um, Enchanted is great. Yeah. And for that one, did you work on visual development mainly for the animated sequences at the beginning and end? Or what kind of um, uh, stuff no, did you provide for that? Mostly did, I just worked on, um, well, I helped Elisa Keen, who was doing the art direction for the animated sequences. So I, I helped her with different assets for the book, the pop-up book, and um, different things. But mostly I worked with a costume designer, Mona May, and I got to design Giselle's wedding dress, but like in the live action part, which was really fun. No, I didn't design her wedding dress. What am I talking about? Sorry. I designed her wedding hair and then her curtain dress, the dress that she makes out of curtains. Oh, yeah. I love that dress. <laughs> I love the scene where she makes it. That whole thing is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Okay, really cool. Yeah. So from any of those or any others that I haven't mentioned that you worked on, do you have any particular special memories from working on any of those Disney-related projects? Um, yeah. I mean, the whole time, it was just Tangled was by far the most personal for me. Just, I think because my dad was developing it and directing it. And I just really felt so connected to it. And it was my first one. And on Rapunzel, on Tangled, I, I was just so wrapped up in how the story was going to go. I mean, I just thought about it all the time. And, and we'd go out to dinner with my parents and my dad and I would just be talking about whatever story problem, story issue was going on with Rapunzel at the moment. And just, the living in that space like I just even during the times when I wasn't working on Tangled because they were focusing on on just the writing part of the story like I I just couldn't stop thinking about it and I was constantly thinking about Rapunzel and thinking about what what she, what she was doing and how how I could help and and I think it was that drive and that passion for a project that just felt so personal that I really wanted that for my future projects and I realized Tangled was a was a very special and unique project in that it was like a family project. My dad was working on it, and it was going to be a very unique thing for me 
to have worked on that. And when I started coming up with my own ideas for books, I started finding that same passion and personal uh, connection to these ideas. So it kind of paved the way for me. It really made me want to do more, more things that felt so personal. Did you have the opportunity to do so? Or, I mean, I know the bar was set really high with Tangled, but Mm -hmm. have you had any others that you've gotten to do that have even approached that level of that personal connection for you? Um, Well, I mean, my books for sure, particularly Little Big Girl. Okay, good. Yeah, and we're going to definitely come back and talk about that in a little while. I'm very much looking forward to talking about Little Big Girl. I can see that being motivation for wanting to do those books of your own so that it's as personal as you can get, really. Yeah. Do you remember going to see Tangled when it was done? And what was that like? It was it was amazing. It was just, one, it was the first time that I saw it with Mandy Moore's voice. And I was just kind of blown away by how well she, she just really captured Rapunzel in such this really authentic and innocent way that I really, really enjoyed. And the animation, just seeing how, how the animators were able to just capture Rapunzel and make her just this really positive, upbeat character. And it was like more than I, I could have even imagined. Great. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would be like. So hearing you describe it kind of takes me there and that would just be overwhelming. So you were just talking about Tangled and working on that with your dad. And speaking of your dad, what was it like growing up with Glenn Keane as your dad and watching or or maybe even being part of him working in such an amazing time for Disney animation? It was really just such a new thing to be able to be in uh, at Disney. It was like one of my first jobs out of this at school and um and it it was kind of an odd time but I kind of think that every time is an odd time because there's always something going on and it's kind of the only thing that I knew was like oh we're in such an a weird space um but for me personally it was such a great space because um they were kind of just at the beginning of doing CG animation and so it wasn't the wild west but it kind of was, and I really liked being in that world where it's like, okay, let's, let's figure out how how we use artists rather than than the well-oiled machine that's kind of dictating where you're going to fit in. So I, I really liked that part. And then just working with my dad was just really inspiring. I mean, not the fact that he's my dad, but just him as a person. He's a very inspiring person to work with, and he really brings out the best in people, and he shows people really, he, he sees a potential in people that's much greater than, than what, or at least for me, much greater than what I was thinking was possible. And just having somebody believe in me that much is great. It's hmm. really. Yeah. What about even when you were younger too, like when he was working on things like The Little Mermaid and, and you were much younger, just kind of growing up while he was doing that. I don't know how much of his work he for lack of a better term, brought home with him or how involved you might have been, but just kind of being, if you'll pardon the expression, part of that world. Yeah, it was really fun to watch him uh, go through all the different characters and 
And I would say that a lot of that has has been inspiring for me. Just watching him like struggle through characters and and just redo a scene so many times and get frustrated with his work. That for me has been the most reassuring thing. Just to know that that's that's all part of the process. <laughs> and, <laughs> But frustration kind of comes with the territory, and and that's good. Right. Yeah, I can. That's a really important lesson to learn. I think in for just about anybody growing up. So the fact that you could see it that way and then go on to live it yourself in the same kind of environment, I can see how that being really yeah. helpful. Yeah. How does he continue to support you? Well, I. I'm always um, talking to him about my latest ideas and, and 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 getting his feedback on and and really what it is is just he's um, really engaged in what I'm trying to communicate with my next idea or something and and he'll just be there and just kind of hash it out with me for the for a story idea or a drawing or a pose and how to how to best communicate an idea through a drawing. Yeah, he's he's still a very big part of my work process, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that you showed him sketches and talked through story ideas and things with uh, your books too, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we just mentioned your books. Let's talk about that new one. I know that's the you're really proud of that, and with good reason. So, not too awful long ago, uh, you released Little Big Girl, which is now available on Amazon, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. But uh, mm-hmm. before people go to see it on Amazon, what's it about? So it's about my daughter becoming a big sister to her her brother. I mean, basically, but really, it's about a little person in a big world, this little girl in a big world who one day somebody even littler than her comes along and she realizes the big um, responsibility that she now has and they discover the big world together. It's just one of those ideas that when it came to me, it just kind of flowed and it, it just made sense because I'd been working, trying to figure out an idea for so long and it just wasn't working. And so when I found the idea, it was it just felt magical inside. And then when I started drawing it, I just even had more of that feeling because it was just all of the wonderful parts of my kids without like, all the annoying parts. It's <laughs> 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 just, just the sweetness of watching Matisse like hold little baby Roman's hand. Well, now he's not a baby and he definitely does not want to be called a baby at all. He's four years old now. But I'm just remembering that time that when he was a baby and she was four years old and she was holding his hand and the way she would talk to him or read to him, it was just so charming and sweet. And it just, uh, and so I was really trying to capture that in this book. I haven't had a chance to uh, to look at the whole thing yet, but I've seen a good part of it. And from what I've seen, you definitely did. And it's it's a very different older sibling being introduced to a younger new sibling story than I think I've ever seen. It seems like most of them are dealing with jealousy or 
in some ways almost teaching them to overcome some kind of adversarial relationship with their new younger sibling. Yeah. And this one is not that at all. I think that it's because I wasn't coming at it from I wanted to do a sibling book. It really wasn't at all. It just kind of became that because in the beginning, I just wanted to do a book about my daughter, Matisse. And I just had this inspiration to do something about this little girl living in a big world. And so I was just kind of going off on that idea until I realized that my son, he's going to feel really left out if he's not in there. And then I was like, but I can't put him in there because then she's not going to be a little girl in a big world anymore. And then I realized, oh, that's what it is. And that's exactly what my story was needing at that moment was something to change or something, something that happens in her world. And, and it just kind of made so much more sense that this be a book about the moment when Matisse met Roman. So I think that I didn't set out to make a siblings book. Um, I wasn't setting out to kind of like tell a moral of the story about how you should love your, your brother or something. It was, it really was more just this trying to express this idea of being a little person in a big world until suddenly you're not the, the littlest person in the big world. Now you have somebody else to be little with and even maybe bigger than and discovering the world together. Yeah. We are hoping to have a second child. And if or when we do, I'm looking forward to reading this this one to my daughter to introduce yeah. her to that idea and, and help her see what it's like because... She likes to be a big girl, even though she's a little girl in yeah. a big world right now. And so I think that uh -huh. this will be a great way to introduce that to her. Now, there's, of course, similarities, but Little Big Girl definitely has a different look from Once Upon a Cloud. So why did yeah. you choose this particular look and style for Little Big Girl? Well, when I do my sketches, I do them in just a really quick, loose, black ink style in Photoshop, just trying to get out situations just going as quickly as I can and so I was doing a few drafts of different ideas beforehand and I really liked the drawings and when I'd show them to my dad he'd say oh these are just so charming he's like whatever you do you got to keep this style it's so charming and he's like oh yeah I guess yeah I guess I could and at the same time I was also looking at like Eloise and just really wanting to do a book like that that's just really simple and I really love Sante, who's a who's a French illustrator. Did a lot of things for The New Yorker, and I just love that style. And so I just felt like this this story really lent itself to it. And it was funny because as I was kind of developing these ideas about my family and drawing my kids, like this just very simple line style came out and I realized that it's so similar to my granddad's style for the family circus. And it just, it just felt so right to me. Like, Oh man, I'm, I'm carrying on in this tradition that I was born into. And I didn't set out to do a style that was similar to his, but it just fell into that. And, and it felt right. Yeah. Once you realized you were doing that, did you then intentionally try to stay in that style that, was along the lines of your granddad, or did it just continue to flow naturally that way? No, it just it just kind of continued to flow naturally. I mean, it, I, I wouldn't say like the 
my color choices are the same ones that my granddad would have done because his is a lot more um, brighter. I feel like his colors are a lot brighter. And I made a specific decision to make sure that the colors were kind of, um, they stayed just the same three colors throughout. But where I did kind of make a, a specific decision to kind of call back to him was in my the author photo at the end. We did a photograph of our family that was inspired directly by a publicity picture that my granddad had done in the 60s. And, and that picture was, he was in the kitchen with my grandma and they had their sons around them. My dad is in the picture and the, and the, the kids are like looking through the, through the um, cupboards and stuff. And my grandma has her, I don't know, she's in the middle of cooking and my granddad's showing her some drawings and some cartoons or something. It just felt like them and their life. And it's, it, I just loved that. I love that picture. And so we did the same thing for my picture, but it was in color. And this time it was me showing my husband who's got the, who's in the kitchen. The kids are looking through the cupboards and stuff like that. That's the only thing that was a specific decided nod to my granddad. That's a great choice. I've seen that photo that I, I love that connection. And of course, I don't remember that original photo of your granddad and the family that you're talking about, but I can certainly picture it. And I, yeah. I love that that callback uh, tribute to him. And I got a detour, I'm sorry, off of Little Big Girl for just a minute, because the question occurs to me, I'm sure that you grew up, at least to some extent, reading The Family Circus, whether actually yeah. in the newspaper or whatever. Did you ever take the, the comics to your dad and like point to a comic and ask him, did you really do that or get any stories out of him of things that he had that you know might have happened in their family that inspired some of these things that your granddad drew yeah yeah I, but then at the same time like a lot of time there were just so many but after a few questions like that you get the answer like yeah I probably did or you know granddad he just made it up or some it was some other person's idea that they gave it to him uh it was never like a very clear answer so I right. asking my <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine so when you created little big girl or even back with once upon a cloud being an artist primarily i suspect i know the answer to this but uh did the pictures create the words or did the words create the pictures most often um well for once upon a cloud it went back and forth so much it wasn't like the pictures would create the words. It was really just this idea of this girl going up to the the sky and meeting the sun, the stars, and the moon, and trying to figure out what each one of those characters could bring to her. The question that she was asking herself, which was, "What should I get my mom, or what should I get my mom for her gift?" And so, yeah, some, sometimes I would just kind of draw something out and try to be like, "Okay, what?" what is it that I'm liking about this moment and how can I portray the moon as a character? Or how, how do I portray the stars characters? Is it just one star? Is it a multitude of stars and the sun? So in that sense, it, it uh, directly influenced the, the words. But then for a little big girl, it was the words. And it teaches a little girl in a big world. And from there, um, that started just inspiring lots of, ideas for vignettes of, oh, 
all of the different ways that you could show a little girl being little in a big world and showing the comparison and all the things that a little person does and just using just using the words little and big and how to just you can kind of just go on forever doing that stuff it was just fun but at one point it got to the point where I just had to okay well okay I keep saying the same thing that she's a little girl in a big world little girl and now something has to happen and that's when I realized oh now someone even littler than her comes in and that's when little Roman makes his appearance got it now as you created these two books and like I say I've probably read Once Upon a Cloud to my daughter 50 times by now uh, if not more, sometimes it's four or five times in a row, oh. and <laughs> she loves she loves pointing out the the characters. And uh, in fact, one of her first words was "up," and one of the first times that she said it was when we were reading "Once Upon a Cloud," and oh, we got to the page. We so we turned to that page, and I had read that she was taken up, up, up into the sky, and she pointed to the page and said "up." That's right, good girl. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But how has creating this book, because we talked about this before with Once Upon a Cloud, but for Little Big Girl, how has creating this book changed or influenced the way that you look at the world? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think that it's really about the project, like seeing the way that that inspiration came to me. I kind of racked my head. I was really up against a brick wall for quite a long time over this book and did a lot of drawings that I really liked. And I kind of came to the realization that they were just one-off drawings and that they didn't work as a book. And then when it was actually in a podcast interview with Chris Oatley that we were talking about where I was, that I was I was kind of complaining about how on the second book, I, I couldn't figure out what the story of my next book was going to be in. And he quoted um, Brian McDonald, who was a story consultant, and he said that Brian always says that you can't figure out what your story is going to be until you know what it is that you want to say. (laughs) 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 And it's such a simple idea. And he said it to me, and, and it just dawned on me. I haven't really sat down and thought about what it is that I want to say about my daughter, Matisse. I've been doing all these drawings. Uh, these little situation kind of little cartoony type drawings, but it's not really saying a specific thing about her. And if it is saying something specific about her, it's not very flattering to her because it was all these kind of like frazzled parent drawings in which <laughs> they 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 work maybe nicely as individual things, and they definitely are very true and authentic to her life, <laughs> um, strung together. In a book, it just wasn't working. Right. And so so I see that it wasn't until I I started thinking about what is it that I want to say. And that really kind of launched me onto this idea that, oh, Matisse is this little girl in a big world, this little person in this big world. And she has such an important role. And the people that meet her recognize how unique and individual she is. And it's just like that I was able to grab onto. And so I guess making Little Big Girl for me was, it has changed the way that I see 
my creative process and just really um, holding on to kind of like exactly what I was talking to you about visual development in the beginning, like when I'm doing my research, like, okay, what is it about this story idea or about the character that I'm attracted to and interested in? And just kind of grabbing onto that and chasing after the things that I like. And for my next book, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm at that brick wall right now, <laughs> um, trying to figure out what it is that this story is going to say, like specifically, what are the words going to be? And there is also the thing, like you can't like recreate the same environment and every project is different. So I have to be open to that too. But no, no, there's this moment of when you really know what the story is. I guess in that way, Little Big Girl has changed me. Okay. Well, and I look forward to your next book coming out and you can come back on and share with us how you got past this brick wall. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know we need to wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. So we'll just give you a chance to have you tell people how they can find out more about you and your book. Uh, Basically, this is what we call shameless plug time here on the show. Okay. People find your book, social media, whatever you want to tell us, go for it. Okay. Um, so you can read more about me. I have a Q&A part on my um, website, claironacloud.com, uh, where I've responded to questions that people have asked me over the years. And there's also a little part in um, at the end of that page where you can post your own question you know, at one point respond to that one too. Um, but you can also find my books on there and my work that I've done for Disney and any other work that I've done. It's all up there. And you can also buy my books anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, ask your local bookstore. Why aren't you carrying Claire Keen? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'll put links to that in the show notes too so that people can find it. And I may even provide a little script for them to use when they go to Barnes & Noble and want to know why the book isn't there and get it on the shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming back on and sharing more about your work for Disney and about your new book. And uh, I'm very excited for people to get it. I'm very excited to read it to my own daughter and look forward to talking to you again on the next one. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Claire Keen for being my guest and to you for listening. Next time, we're talking to another former cast member, but we're going international. Remember to contact me for more information or to get a quote for the podcast cruise on the Disney Wonder in September of this year, 2017. I want you to join us. If you missed the details when I first announced it, Richard and Sarah Woloski from Skywalking Through Neverland and I talked all about it in episode 119 of this podcast. Now, as before, I'll link to that episode in the show notes here so you can get right to it. Or you can just email me at cruise at storiesofthemagic.com and I will fill you in personally. Our group is filling up and space is limited, so if you think you even might be interested, contact me today. Now, I promised to start including brief tidbits and tips into each episode, something to hopefully increase your enjoyment of something about Disney, usually the parks, but not always. So here's the first one. This is a little bit of a tidbit. 
You may already know that in Disneyland, the original Tomorrowland was set in the then far distant future year of 1986. You may also know that Main Street USA was set at the turn of the century, spanning several years. According to Walt Disney, it was 1890 to 1910. Covers that whole range there. But did you know that there is actually a thematic tie between the two? 1986 was chosen for Tomorrowland because that was the next year that Halley's Comet would be visible. But what is the period of Halley's Comet? How often does it appear? If you said every 76 years, you're correct. That means the comet was last seen 76 years before 1986, or 1910. Tomorrowland marks the next time Halley's Comet would appear, and Main Street marks the last time it had appeared. How's that for an unexpected connection? Now, Tomorrowland has been updated several times since then, but you can think about when you're on Main Street or even when you're walking through the new, 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 new Tomorrowland. I don't know if I got the right number of news in there, but however many it is, as you walk through it, you can think back to that original Tomorrowland and the connection between those two parts of the park. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, maybe you've written a book, created a website, or you're blogging, writing, or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special Disney experience that you want to share, maybe even give a compliment or a thank you for something Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you too. Maybe you have something that you really enjoyed about Tangled or Frozen or Enchanted, or maybe one of those is your favorite movie, and you want to say thank you to Claire for her work that she did on it, and maybe even ask her to pass that thanks on to Glenn as well, to pass that on to her dad. For any of these, what I just described, or one of those other things I mentioned, there's a lot of choices there. For any of those, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, Stitcher Smart Radio, or through Google Play Music. Now, on Google Play Music, it's a little harder to find. You find it at storiesofthemagic.com slash Google, or search Stories of the Magic in Google Play Music and look under Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. It really helps. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like, in this case, being able to get to Claire's books or her website. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. But this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. 
If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.